Hello and welcome to episode two of the Appreciative Scholar podcast. My name is Cameron Barlow, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing the research and scholarship of Dr. Britt Lundgren, Assistant Professor in Physics and Astronomy at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and Co-Chair for Education and Public Outreach for the fourth generation of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Will you introduce yourself and share with us a little about you and what it is you're working on? Sure. Um, so thank you for the invitation to talk to you. I'm really excited about that um, uh, opportunity, and I'm really interested in the project that you're doing. It sounds really fantastic. Um, so my name is uh, Britt Lundgren, and I'm an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. And um, among some other um, service roles that I Hold at the moment, I am uh, currently co-chair of education and public outreach for the uh, fourth generation of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey collaboration. Is your research that you're doing related to the Sloan, or are you working on anything else that you want to share with us right now? Um, it is related. So I, um, I've been working in, um, I should say, I've been working with data from the Sloan survey pretty much since the first light, meaning that the time when they first opened the telescope and were getting the first images um, uh, at the, the location where it is in New Mexico at Apache Point Observatory. So at, at that time, I was actually a freshman in college, and I, um, I responded to a flyer that I found saying that they were looking for undergraduates to help with research, um, looking at data from quasars, which um, I'm not sure if I even knew what they were at the time, but it sounded exciting and I wanted to get involved. And um, now, uh, I should say about two decades later, many generations of the survey have um, have happened and I've been lucky to be um, all throughout my career located at institutions that were partners in the survey. So I've just kind of accidentally been involved with um, the Sloan collaboration for my entire career and it's been really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, so, so my research continues to use the samples of um, quasars and galaxies that are one of the kind of main targets of, uh, uh, of the survey. So is that is that what you're working on currently? Is that your current research project, or are you working on anything else? So um, <laughs> you're an astronomer by trade, right? But there might be there might be something else that you're working on, or something that's you know not necessarily related to that. I mean, you can share whatever you'd like. <laughs> sure. So I do have um, I have my hand in a number of pots right now. Um, so there are a few different research projects that I am involved with. Um, the Sloan survey um, at its core is designed to map out in three dimensions the the local universe around us. So um, so it started out by taking images of the sky and making, in fact, the, the largest digital image of the night sky that had ever been made to that date. So about a third of all of the sky that can be seen from the Earth has been mapped um, by the Sloan Telescope. Now, that initial image, uh, which was made in color, provided kind of a, um, a starting point for picking objects of interest to follow up with spectroscopy, which was the kind of second component of the survey. And um, a spectrograph that was able to take spectra for 640 objects all at once um, could be mounted onto the back of the telescope in place of the camera and um, simultaneously uh, collect spectra for hundreds of objects um, 
many times a night. Um, so, so very quickly measuring spectra for thousands of objects um, every single night and building up this more comprehensive um, sample of, uh, of spectra for stars, galaxies, and quasars. So, so what the spectra give us that allows us to make our maps 3D is distance information. So you can tell by the shift of the light um, in the spectrum, which is a measurement of, um, uh, of, of brightness as a function of wavelength. So it kind of shows you in detail what the, the rainbow of colors for every individual object uh, looks like. And from the shape of that um, spectrum, we can figure out what objects are, um, classify them by type, uh, figure out how far away they are by how much their light is shifted into the red, which is um, a result of the expansion of the universe. Um, and then uh, uh, we, you know, by figuring out how far away things are, we can turn our maps into three-dimensional um, uh, visualizations of the universe. So, so it's these maps and this data set that I use to find um, objects that are particularly interesting for very specific science um, investigations. So, so what I do um, is run a, a computer algorithm that I've spent a long time kind of fine tuning that reads in all of those quasar spectra. So now it's hundreds of thousands of these things. And um, for each one of those, it will look for patterns in the spectrum that indicate the presence of um, a cloud in between us and this very distant quasar, which is just a, a center of a galaxy that has a supermassive black hole that's actively accreting material, making it very bright and visible from the distant universe. Um, so, so because we can see quasars from so far away, as their light travels to us, it is often intercepted by um, uh, things along the way. And oftentimes those are, you know, space is very big um, and largely very empty. But if your, your uh, light from a distant quasar passes reasonably close to a galaxy on its way here, um, it can uh, have some of that light absorbed by dust and gas surrounding the galaxy. And that leaves a fingerprint basically on the pattern of light that we see. So um, of course you can't find these one by one in hundreds of thousands of, of spectra. So, um, so what I do is I train computers to find those for me. And then, um, then you know, I pick interesting objects to follow up with different kinds of telescopes that give us different kinds of information. So the Hubble Space Telescope, for instance, um, allows us to actually look very deeply on a certain part of the sky in a very small um, field of view and be able to actually observe the really faint galaxies that are associated with the gas that we've picked up um, uh, using the spectroscopy of more distant quasars. So, so I use the Hubble Space Telescope to actually um, look for uh, galaxies that are otherwise really hard to see from the ground and study their shapes and um, their star formation rates and, and see how they change over time. Um, and I also use radio telescopes, so big arrays, like the very large array, which is aptly named. Um, in the is, that one, is that one in Peru? 
Um, no, no. The VLA is in New Mexico, okay. in Socorro. So, um, so I'm not a radio astronomer. It's not what my expertise um, lies in, but I collaborate with um, a radio astronomer who's based in Germany, um, Anne Mao, and she uh, uh, and I together find samples of interesting quasars to follow up with radio observations and um, try to understand the the way that magnetic fields around galaxies are organized and um, and how those change over time. So so I have a number of different projects all kind of related to using quasars as probes of uh, distant galaxies. And not only uh, astronomy, do you have to know like all of the ins and outs of physics and astrophysics, but you also apparently have to know computer science and programming. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's funny because I never um, was a formal student of computer science or programming, <laughs> but it's it's fundamental to modern astronomy. So most astronomers um, of my era kind of picked it up on their own um, by necessity. And so we're not necessarily very slick programmers, but we make code that's very functional. Um, it's probably not optimized as well as it could be, but it works. Um, I think younger astronomers, it's there's kind of um, a change happening in the structure of the education and preparation for uh, career astronomers. And, and that's becoming more of a um, kind of a universal component of uh, astronomy education. Um, but yeah, no matter, it doesn't matter if you got it formally or not, most astronomers find themselves doing computer programming as right. kind of the, you know, the lion's share of the, the work. Yeah, which will probably become, like you're saying, even, even a larger part of the, an astronomy career because, uh, because of techniques in, um, telescope technology or in, um, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which I was talking about earlier, was really um, uh, a big step up in terms of the amount of data it was collecting from previous surveys. Um, and, and I should say, ever since like Tycho Brahe, you know, in the 1500s, astronomy has kind of been considered a big data science. You know, there are lots of stars in the sky. As soon as people started cataloging them, you know, you have um, these massive lists. And then as soon as you get telescope technology, you can see even more. So, you know, efforts to survey the sky have always produced these large data sets in, in um, you know, for, for the past hundred, few hundreds of years. And this is only getting exponentially more, um, more important. So as we move to future surveys, like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, sorry, oh, it's just been renamed, um, the Vera Rubin Observatory, and uh, I'm not sure if the survey has been renamed, I should know this. Um, but anyway, you know, the next era of astronomy surveys coming up in just the next um, couple of years will be producing petabytes of data, um, which, which is how much? Um, that's a good point. That's a good question. So, so gigabytes are um, billions of bytes of data, right? And terabytes are a thousand times um, of those, a thousand gigabytes and a terabyte. And then a petabyte is a thousand of those. Um, a thousand and terabytes. A thousand terabytes. Yeah. And so, is that per is that per shot? Um, so I oh I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think um, by Maybe it doesn't really matter, but it just seems like such an a, a no pun intended an astronomical amount of <laughs> data. 
It is. It is. It's actually so. So that survey, which is American led, it's funded mostly by the National Science Foundation. That's going to be starting in Chile, where the telescope's being built um, uh, now. And there's actually going to be so much data produced by that survey because it's basically doing the Sloan every couple nights. So it's mapping the sky repeatedly over and over and over again and storing all of that data um, with the intention of looking for things that change, which is something that we haven't done in a large scale in astronomy yet. So it's really exciting because it's going to pick up things like supernova or variable stars or um, near Earth objects that are moving across the sky. So it's going to see the dynamics of the universe in a way that hasn't been studied uniformly um, or at large scale before. So that, that's going to make so much data that they can't actually um, uh, share it through satellite um, methods or even by mailing hard drives back to the US. So what they've done is actually um, uh, built their own fiber optic cable physically connecting the telescope in Chile um, to the data centers in the US. Wow. So um, yeah. <laughs> Running so, through where? Um, through uh, mountains and, and <laughs> the ocean. And, wow. Yeah, That's it's really, it's really yeah. So they have their own, um, their own cable just for moving this data, these data. Wow. So, so, Oh, sorry. So, so to go circle back to your question, um, you know, students who are getting into astronomy now will be um, facing the challenge of that data, you know, when when they um, start doing research. So a lot of the really interesting kind of cutting edge stuff is going to necessitate being able to analyze and visualize really enormous data sets in a way that really we've been kind of warming up to, but we haven't seen this scale before. Um, so I've been involved in a number of um, workshops that have been um, trying to get out ahead of this problem and really think about how we can better prepare the astronomy um, workforce for these challenges and how we can make sure that this upcoming even bigger challenge of uh, big data computing doesn't become a barrier to entry for students from particular backgrounds, especially. Mm -hmm. So making sure that the, the, um, the community of astronomers is as inclusive as possible um, to make sure that, that everyone has access to these kinds of discoveries. Interesting. So will that, I wonder if that will entail, you know, in, in the past when computing languages have become, and maybe this is an irrelevant question, but when computer languages have become kind of obsolete because they can no longer process the amount of data that is kind of presented to them in a concise way. Often computer scientists develop a new language, a new computer language to process. Um, yeah, so, so that's true. Um, but I, I think you can, you can kind of get around needing a new, there's always going to be a new language. Like right now we're in the transition possibly from everyone most people using Python right. um, in the astronomy community to some people starting to use Julia, which is um, kind of on the horizon as the, the next um, common language. But, uh, but you can do a lot just with supercomputers. So, um, you know, what, uh, what many of us do now is even if we can't write super fast code, um, we try to parallelize it so that you can have 
uh, hundreds of cores running um, all at the same time to cut down how long it would take you to process a very large data set. So, so doing that can really speed things up. Is your research then, because you were saying that you're focused on kind of preparing or you're in discussion about how to prepare the future of astronomy education. Does right. your research extend into the field of education? I mean, you're obviously a professor, but does your research extend into the field of pedagogy or does it just? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I, I would say my colleagues at UNC Asheville are really kind of at the forefront of this. I think um, pedagogy research is something that a lot of UNCA faculty actually specialize in. And at UNCA, we have um, some other faculty in physics and astronomy who, um, who really specialize in this as well. So uh, Professor Ruiz, for instance, has just been a leader in um, kind of modern, modern ways of uh, introducing basic physics to students who are non-majors using art and music, um, light and sound. He's done really interesting stuff and published a lot in that space. Um, and, and others in, in the department have done the same. And I sh should say that before I came to UNCA, I spent a year at the National Science Foundation where I was um, tasked with kind of crunching the numbers in a big data set um, that uh, was maintained to follow students who had received scholarships from the National Science Foundation uh, to pursue undergraduate degrees in STEM fields. And what I was looking at was, um, you know, what kinds of activities had they engaged in during their college experience and how did that affect their um, persistence and their attitudes towards STEM? So I got to do a little bit of um, education research while I was there. And, you know, the, the punchline of what I found was that uh, engaging students in authentic research activities as early as possible is really the, the best way to maintain students' interest and persistence in STEM degrees. Um, in fact, it was as effective as giving out scholarships. Um, so, so I'm really committed to, um, to engaging more students in undergraduate research and making sure that that research is, um, is novel and exciting. And it doesn't always get published because um, undergraduate years are a very compressed time and very busy for students. But um, I, I think my aim is always to, um, to give students a positive impression of science and to, to give them a taste of what it's really like um, so that they can decide whether or not they're really interested in, in doing that maybe after college. And I found it to be, um, you know, a, a great way of getting students interested in even, you know, uh, studying science as a major or a minor also. So, um, yeah, so, so I'm working on um, actually kind of formalizing, you know, putting elements of authentic research into our 100 level astronomy curriculum to see if that improves our, um, uh, the kind of campus interest in physics and astronomy and, and see if we can get more students engaged in research later on. You can't see me here, but I'm nodding my head the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wonder, I, I, I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of data that's been kind of gathered from from that, but I would I, imagine it's mostly because it because research, especially undergraduate research, can be so interest-led by yeah. the students. 
And so it kind of whets the palate for more interest-led approach to the STEM fields because they're not stagnant, right? They're constantly, especially astronomy, right? Constantly developing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the old way of teaching, you know, introductory courses in STEM is has been exactly the opposite of that. You're teaching people about Newton's laws, which were discovered hundreds of years ago, and then telling them this very prescriptive way of solving these really boring problems, you know? And so I think- Which are relevant to understanding the foundations of astronomy, but then how do you kind of get beyond the relevant factual nature of historical science and math to like, okay, and now how can you use this? Exactly, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, why why do we put these barriers, you know, why, why do we make all the fun stuff um, only available to students at the end? Right. Senior know? level, senior level courses doing uh, research courses. Exactly. I mean, there's there's no reason that you know there are elements of novel, cutting edge research that freshmen in college are fully capable of engaging in. Um, why should we make them wait and and go through the drudgery of some of these courses, which can be really hard? You know, getting the fundamentals is important. Um, but does it have to be as, um, as discouraging, you know, I, th I think it can be more exciting. And so we're, um, I, I'm really interested in working on that. And that's, that's an interesting concept because it breaks away from the, in my mind, it breaks away from the traditional, like there's evidence that group work inside of class works, you know, to stimulate interest. But I think what you're suggesting goes even a step beyond that, right? Into you know, outside of, in some way, prescriptive um, group work in, in course to a kind of a, a realm of the unknown, which is exciting, especially for, especially for students who are taking these courses because they're interested in astronomy. Right, absolutely. And this is, you know, it's for astronomy in particular, I'm, sh I'm sure it's, it's true also for physics. There's really exciting stuff going on at CERN and, and in other um, fields as well. But in astronomy, you know, the technology has advanced so fast and we're making new discoveries just like on a monthly basis. There's an exciting story that comes out. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think it, it's kind of, it would be doing students a disservice not to show the discovery aspect of science as, as at its core. You know, the core is not balls rolling down a plane as important as that is. Um, you need to know the fundamentals, but you, you know, you should also get a taste for the excitement of discovery um, as early as possible, because that's, that's really at the core of the game. That's what science is about. Right. And that it's, con that's a kind of alive for lack of a better term that it's happening it's imminent happening. Yeah, yeah absolutely yes that's fascinating so um i don't know that i have any other questions for you i think you've explained a lot if, if there's anything else you wanted to touch on what i'm doing with the sloan survey um in my role as, as a co-chair of education and public outreach which has been a really fun service role that I've had for the past four years with uh, a colleague at the University of St. Andrews um, in Scotland, Rita Tejero. Uh, we've had a lot of fun trying to make sure that this um, really great data set from the Sloan, which is not just spectra, which can be kind of hard to, to engage with as, um, as a member of the public, but the images 
from this massive map of the sky, um, get into the hands of the public and students and really get them engaged in, um, in learning about astronomy through looking at real data. Right, because they are available online and to the public. Yeah, so they are, right. So, um, so there's a website called voyages.sdss.org, uh, which we've been working on the development of uh, in, in recent years. And because a lot of our um, science operations are now also in, in Chile, we've um, started working with uh, Spanish-speaking scientists who are members of the collaboration, which is international um, in nature, I should say. We have um, gotten a lot of help from them in translating the site and making it available to Spanish-speaking audiences. So we've been um, giving teacher workshops for high school science teachers throughout the US and in the UK. But now um, I'm really excited over the past couple of years, we've had a number of workshops in Chile and also in Mexico. Um, and that's just been really, really fun. So I think there's, um, you know, astronomy is, is great because we're sharing the sky and so many of us can relate to the excitement of, of the field. And um, in some ways that kind of is uh, I should say, like, you know, it uh, crosses boundaries. Of kind of, the sky is a common background for all of us. Yeah, yeah. So not to get too cheesy about it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but but we do have a, an annual meeting called Sharing One Sky, which is um, hosted in Chile, but um, uh, begun in partnership with our Sloan education team. And it's been a really fun way of meeting educators and sharing ideas, um, not just for high school level, but college and beyond as well. And, and um, from all over Central and South America and beyond. So it's, it's a really exciting time. And I think astronomy is um, really doing a lot of social good in addition to um, kind of making really exciting discoveries these days. So it's a, it's a fun space to watch, keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> Well, thank you for taking the time to talk today about your work. Is there anywhere that listeners might be able to find out more about you and your work or any of your recent publications? Um, there is. So I think um, if you go to astrophysics.wp, like wordpress.unca.edu, um, you can see all of the stuff that's going on in the astrophysics realm at UNC Asheville. And um, you can find out more about me, my research group, and my colleagues and what they're up to there. And I'll leave that information in the show notes. Great. Well, well this has been lovely, Cameron. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you, Dr. Lundgren. Contact information from this podcast is available on the show notes page at appreciativescholar.com. If you're interested in the project and would like to get involved, feel free to contact us via the website. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.